This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. My subject today is premature delivery, and my guest is the Reverend Julie Jarvis. She is the chaplain, the minister for the Interfaith Families Project, a group in the greater Washington, D.C. area, which is committed to providing uh, religious education and opportunities for the kids of joint Christian-Jewish marriages. Julie delivered identical twins at 26 weeks, three months early. They each weighed one and a half pounds. They're now 15 and a half years old, and she did some of her training as a chaplain in a neonatal intensive care unit and can speak to us about that experience. So, Julie, are you there? Yes. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you, Anne. So glad to have you on the show. I wanted to start out by asking you if you could tell us a story about what happened when you were pregnant and how it was that you delivered your daughters. Well, it wouldn't have all happened without um, meeting my soulmate um, in 1990, and I met him, and a year and a half later, we decided to get married, and we bought a house, got married, and conceived these uh, children, these babies that, um, from the beginning, the pregnancy was um, very hard, and I was sick for most of it. And then about 22 weeks, um, I lost my mucus plug and had to be put on a, um, a medicine to keep um, the contractions um, low. And so I was also put on bed rest in my home. And um, within, after probably a, a week or so of being on bed rest at home, I... Um, it was pretty clear that I needed to come into the hospital. And what they did in the hospital was um, put me in a position called Trendelenburg, which meant that my head was lower than my feet. Mm. And I was, I had, I couldn't get up at all. Um, so um, that was quite rough. How long were you forced to lie like that? For about three weeks until the girls came, mm. so um, it was it was very scary. It was because the girls were. Um, it was clear. My doctors were pretty clear that I had uh, an incompetent cervix, and um, so I got to pause you there. Just that term, an incompetent cervix. Can you can you explain that? Well, what does that mean that my cervix was. Um, not capable of holding these twin girls in and um, in, 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 in the womb, and it was a, it was the cervix was very soft. Um, had they known that earlier, they probably could have done a surclage and, and um, that's a stitch in it to hold it together. Right. right? Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, so there you are lying kind of semi-upside down, and you've been told that the problem is that some part of your body is incompetent. Right. Uh -huh. And, um, of course, we racked our brains as to, you know, why would I have an incompetent cervix? And um, the one of the reasons um, that was given to us was that um, 
my mother, when she was pregnant with me, um, took some medicine to keep, she was pregnant with twins, I'm a twin, and that she took medicine for nauseousness and um, that that could have been a factor in Mm. what caused my cervix to be so soft and um, uh, once I I did explore that with my mom a little bit and that was very hard for her to hear that anything that she did in her pregnancy would cause any kind of um, malfunctioning with my pregnancy um, mm-hmm. was enough to do her in. So we really did not explore that very much. We left it um, uh, kind of buried. Mm-hmm. Her pain about possibly causing you pain. Yes. Yeah. Because she, she was feeling, um, when I brought it up to her, she just said, are, are you saying that my some medicine that I took when I was pregnant with you is causing the problems that you're having with your pregnancy. And and I just, because of the angst in her voice, I said, you know, Mom, it's a theory that they have, and um, but we're going to live with what we have right now and, and not go into the past because it, it doesn't seem like it's going to help the, the present moment. So we just let it go. So part of what... I wanted to explore with you today was this whole notion of how often in our culture and in medical culture too and certainly in psychiatric culture the mother has been the one to blame to be blamed and so what I'm hearing is that both you and your mom kind of struggled with that feeling badly about it yeah I mean Mm -hmm. I also was um, racking my brain like did I did I do anything in my early pregnancy to hurt the pregnancy um, you know, my, could I have done something to um, soften my cervix? Was I too active? I traveled uh, in my work. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was all about what have I done, you know, to create the situation. And I had midwives. I had tried to be as healthy as I possibly could have been. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and I really, I also, Anne, was, um, I grew up in a very fundamentalist, rigid um, community, and I, when I knew that the girls were in, this pregnancy was in trouble, I, um, I immediately jumped to the possibility that God was punishing me and punishing my husband, mm-hmm. because I had lived with my husband before we got married, and so... Mm-hmm. That was a big, for, and I would say as quickly as that thought came into my head, it luckily moved through me fairly quickly, but it definitely was a part of my um, shame and guilt around this situation. Had I, had I done something different, would, maybe I wouldn't have been punished. And so, um, mm. Yeah, so on top of the fear for your children and your physical discomfort, really internally you had to struggle with, had you brought this on yourself somehow? How Was it your fault? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was an awful feeling. Yeah. Especially um, having the, holding the lives of two um, babies in 
my life and wondering if I was at somehow fault for their future suffering, knowing that they were going to come early. Um, and they did. They came at 26 weeks. And there were three things that happened in the hospital um, that was quite painful for both my husband and me. And the first thing that happened was there was a lot of pressure on us to um, have the babies um, delivered by cesarean. And um, I had, it was just very clear to me that I wanted a, a natural vaginal birth and I had midwives there and they too were encouraging that and they were even the midwives were saying if you know we could have a quiet vaginal birth and if the babies for some reason die it'll just be um, a really um, lovely way to be with them and and, um, in their in their dying Mm-hmm. Um, outside of a surgical table with lots of medical people around. and So I was hearing and holding that along with my OBGYN folks who were pressuring us to have a cesarean saying the st- statistics are that they, a vaginal birth would be put too much pressure on pound-and-a-half babies and you you really should have a, a C-section and this is the best way to make sure that they will survive. And so it was it was awful. Mm. And my husband was not wanting to um he he kind of his anguish was around not knowing what these girls the quality of their lives and and really um internally not wanting to have vegetables in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. that would need a lot of life support and that we would be responsible for that. So you were facing a profound choice over life and death with with real uncertainty, not knowing whether you should make a choice for a good death or a choice for an aggressive fight for life. Yes. And you were getting professionals giving you differing advice about that. Mm. So... Ultimately, uh, I, I, uh, uh, ultimately, my husband left it in my hands, um, which I was really grateful for his deferring to me. And um, in my best gut judgment I went the traditional way or a cesarean the Mm -hmm. medical way because I just listening to all the facts and statistics I just um, I kind of left my gut feeling and went more towards um, what seemed to be the appropriate thing to do Mm -hmm. and what the more you know the medical people were encouraging me to do Um, that was not an easy decision. No. And um, so the girls came, and um, this right after they came, and they're um, they seemed to be doing fine. They were they they you know a pound and a half. They looked very strange. Maybe you can Im- just help us imagine if you were to hold them in your hand. How how big were your daughters? Well, if 
you know those little small um, circular band-aids that you put on a cut on a finger? Yes. Um, that could practically fit around one of their legs. Mm-hmm. So they were red and very, very small. You couldn't, Randy, used to, my husband, thought they looked like monkeys. Mm-hmm. So um, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care doctors, immediately met with us and told us there was uh, a law that they had to buy, abide by called the Baby Doe Law. And basically this law was um, a, a pretty <laughs> aggressive um, law for premature infants that it stated something like the lines of aggressive um, care for premature infants must be given regardless of future disability or the wishes of the parents. Mm. The only exception would be unless um, the treatment would somehow be futile or inhumane. And so these particular NICU doctors told us that basically this is how it was going to be in their NICU, that they would take all aggressive measures to treat our girls, Jean and Lauren, or their names, um, no matter what kind of disabilities they would have in the future. And this was obviously very hard for us to hear, not only having the shock of having um, premature babies, but now being told basically that they would be out of our care, um, that any kind of decisions that we would make for their care would ultimately be in the doctors um, under their decisions. So my husband um, took this to the ethics board of the hospital and um, said, made a case that we wanted to have, um, we wanted to be able to make the decision about our, our babies. And Which decision in particular? A decision that we, any decision that would, if there were some sort of treatment that um, doctors would choose to give to our kids in order to save their lives. I see. So it was more like generic. You wanted, you wanted the power to call yes. the shots. Yes. Yeah. And um, he, he fought hard, um, but social workers, and um, the social workers really, and the hospital administration rallied around the NICU doctors. And so it was clear that we would not have um, the autonomy mm-hmm. and the power that we wanted to have in the care of our girls. So that was very difficult, and so we decided at that point to move our one-and-a-half-pound babies to another hospital where we knew uh, we had a dear friend that was a chaplain there at Children's Hospital, and he assured us, and the head doctor of the NICU there assured us that they they would give us as parents... um, we would be the dis- main decision makers. Mm. So we told the hospital that we were going to move the girls, and they were not um, happy with our decision, and said that they would. Um, it would be an 
against medical advice if we did that. And they came into my room and one of the NICU doctors and said I would, we were making a big mistake and that the babies could die during the transport and how could we do something like this. And it was really awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just coming out of a cesarean operation and recovering from that and just um, was at this point leaving these decisions in Randy's hands and um, feeling trustworthy of, of, um, of his you know, wisdom around that. Yes, but you were in a terrible position. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. My guest today is Julie Jarvis talking about premature birth and some of the internal struggles of making decisions as a parent for one-and-a-half-pound-old babies. I want to I shift us a little bit from, so you made the decision, I understand, and you moved to children's. I want to ask now, having done that with all the fear and trepidation that I can imagine you had, how was it then to begin building a relationship with these two girls? Um, I know you were so steeped in the culture of wanting to bond with them and attach to them. And um, how how was that for you, given that they were so small and in these incubators? Oh, um, it was um, agony for me. It was. Um, we could go to the hospital any time. We could not actually, the girls were in incubators and we could not touch them except with rubber, like these, you know, rubber gloves, mm-hmm. latex gloves. And um, I was um, pumping in order to get them breast milk and they were taking breast milk intravenously. Um, there was lots of concerns about just their lung development. The lungs are the last to develop in a embryo, and um, they were having heart and breathing problems, which coincide with each other. And um, it was just horrendous for us. I I remember well the the. The hope that we received was that a dear friend gave us, found an article about something called kangaroo care, where um, you, this is in Columbia, South America, they had run out of incubators, and so they asked the mothers to stay in the hospital and just hold their babies skin to skin as they were feeding them, and just to hold them skin to skin, and lo and behold, they discovered these babies did so much better better than the babies in the incubators. Mm-hmm. And um, so we asked Children's Hospital if they would be willing for us to do kangaroo care. And um, I remember we because we had two babies, um, Randy needed to hold them too, skin to skin. And hospitals are not easy for my husband to, to be in yet. Once he started doing kangaroo care with the girls, it was hard for us to get him home. He Mm. really bonded with them Mm. when we were doing that. And so um, I think the hardest thing was going home and leaving them. Mm. 
because we would go home every night and and to get some sleep because I knew a a tired um, cranky mother wouldn't be good for anybody so it was important for both of us to get rest and but um, they, they I think I couldn't breastfeed them either and even they came home after three three and a half months and uh, I still I still had a lot of anguish around just normal breastfeeding them because I had to get so much milk into them mm-hmm. um, every two to three hours, and I my I couldn't measure my breast milk when I was breastfeeding them, so I just kept pumping, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, that was how I think I... Um, some of the guilt and the shame and the anguish was relieved was pumping um, breast mm. Something and concrete you yes. could do for them. Yes. Yes, that and makes I knew so much this sense. the best thing I could give them along with our touch and our love, but that there was something that milk could, um, was the elixir of, of their part of the, big part of their healing. And Yeah, so I think maybe this is a moment to switch gears. We have only a few more minutes left, and given how long a journey this was for you and how much uh, fear for their lives you were living with on a moment-by-moment basis. What, what, can you tell us how you have begun to heal? What, what has felt you've been able to grieve? What still feels hard to heal? Yeah, well, the girls are, um, 15 and a half, as you said, and, um, I remember, um, they they were in the school in a local uh, Maryland uh, school, and they at, at a kindergarten level, these kids were being tested for being gifted and talented. And Jean and Lauren didn't pass the test, and I thought, oh my God, see, this is what's going to happen. They're they're you know their prematurity. There's going to there's they they've had some brain damage and. Um, but you know when and I actually went in to check on their test scores, and it just they were they had um, almost they were right on the edge, and actually they ended up putting them in the program because they were right on the edge but the the other thing was I remember our first the first time we went to their kindergarten teachers to for a conference, I thought this was going to be it. they're going to tell us these girls. They just, you know, they probably need to stay back. They need more time. They're, they're a little slow, and they're not getting stuff. And, and they just had nothing but great things to say about these girls. Mm. And I said, are you sure? I kept saying, there's nothing you're seeing that they're behind in. And they just assured us nothing was going on. And I remember getting in the car afterwards and just, feeling literally like a ball and chain had was off they were off my feet Mm. and this load was gone and that they were going to be okay Mm. um so i think just time has assured us of their okayness and and i um you know, the fact that they're teenagers and they won't hug me much anymore, I think, well, is this because they weren't touched much in the hospital? 
hospital. Mm. And I have that. <laughs> you know, there's still these, yeah. this, a little bit of the, that story creeps up because their situation was so dire and um, at the time. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's an all, they're totally in into music and, um, actually you can, you can go and hear them sing together. They have, uh, on YouTube, uh, they have lots of songs you can hear them and see how beautiful they are. And What's the address? Tell us if we want to go see it's them. It's youtube.com slash law, L-A, rules, R-U-L-E-S, and the number 12. And, you know, just the, this, this, these are our miracles that um, they're, they're uh, not um, mathematically geniuses, but they're, um, they're alive, they're... Um, they turned out to be regular kids. Just regular like. kids with asthma and glasses and normal stuff that a lot of kids have. And mm. I asked them last night, is there anything they'd like to say about their growing, being in NICU and stuff? And, and Jean said, we just feel like, you know, she was speaking for her sister too, but she says, we feel like we're supposed to be alive. We're meant to be on this earth, and we're grateful to be here. Mm. That seems like a wonderful place to stop. Thank you, Julie, so much for agreeing to tell us about this really difficult time in your life, and I'm so thrilled to hear how well your daughters are doing. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. So my thanks today to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Hanukkah Castle for the music, and some editorial input from Kate Hallward, Mary Hallward-Dreamar, and Michael Leppi. This is Dr. Anne on Safe Space. If you have a request for a future show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E-W-M-P-G at gmail.com. Next week, my guest is going to be Dr. Robert Childs speaking to us about adoption. Coming up next is Caribbean Flava with Danny.